0: I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. I'm so pleased to have Tatia Beecham, co-founder of Birchbox on the podcast today. And Tatia, thank you so much for being here.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. Um, I'm sure everybody knows about First Box already because it's taken the beauty industry by storm. But for those of you who haven't heard the details, First Box is a subscription service where for $10 a month you get a curated beauty box of all these amazing goodies. And you can try them out and experience them and, um, and purchase them if you like them. And this phenomenon in the concept of subscription beauty was really thought up by you and your co-founder I mean to large extent um so that's amazing and I understand Katya, that you guys started this business as just an idea when you were at Harvard Business School can you tell us a little bit more about
1: that absolutely so when we were in business school my co-founder and I were you know, gonna graduate in six months and we thought it would be a good experience to write a business plan. So that's kind of where all of this started. And we were attending different entrepreneurship talks on campus and saw, you know, some of the recent at the time female founders on campus, like the Gil Group founders and the Run-Thru Runway founders. And we noticed that it was, you know, women were starting businesses for women, which seemed very logical, but still, you know, rare to see as many female entrepreneurs represented. And it inspired us to think about, okay, well, if we want to start a consumer focused business, we should do something that we can relate to that we can understand as consumers and as female consumers. And it just struck us that amongst all of the different ideas and the different companies that we were hearing about, nobody was talking about the beauty industry. And that was interesting for one very basic reason that beauty industry is huge. $500 billion. And it was still, you know, the fastest growing mature industry. So we were surprised that it wasn't, you know, being discussed as a really right place for disruption, disruptive innovation. And that got us thinking about, you know, why weren't people trying to focus on disrupting beauty, changing the beauty industry. So we did a little digging, and we realized that um, there was a few, you know, kind of Current things that were happening in beauty, and especially beauty as it relates to e-commerce. One was that nobody was buying beauty on the internet. Even in 2009, it was basically two percent of online sales. And from what we could gather, that was replenishment. You know, largely people replenishing like fragrances. And so that was intriguing. Um, and then we also talked to consumers about how they consumed beauty, and a few things came up that um, just were repeated, and it helped us kind of coalesce around a problem that we wanted to solve. And those things were, people talked about, you know, how confusing beauty was. Why were there so many options? Why are there, you know, 100 types of serums and, you know, thousands of mascaras and, you know, why? And they were talking all the time about they walk into a store and they just walk out. It's overwhelming. Um, And the other thing consumers said very consistently was that they weren't willing to purchase prestige beauty without trying it first. That that was a requirement. They were going to try before they purchased the product. And obviously, those two things made the Internet a really unlikely place to buy beauty because, number one, the Internet made the options that infinite. You know, instead of it being at least contained by four walls or five linear feet of shelves, you really could just go down a rabbit hole of looking for the perfect, um, you know, like I said, face wash or exfoliator online. Um, and also the internet obviously didn't give customers the opportunity to touch it and smell it and try it. So my co-founder and I said, we are gonna fix this. We're gonna figure out how to create a destination place to buy beauty on the internet. And to do that, we have to overcome two problems. We have to make the options that small. We have to help consumers really digest the experience and make simple choices and Secondly, we have to give people the ability to try before they buy. And basically from that insight, within 24 hours, we had the broad breaststrokes of our business model, which was a subscription where you try, you know, five personalized samples a month for $10, paired with content to teach you about product, paired with, you know, the ability to purchase anything that you liked trying right from Birchbox.com.
0: That's amazing. And so I understand you guys beta tested this idea before you just, you know, you were about to graduate from business school before you decided to take a regular corporate job. You had a little trial. And how did that go? Yes, we
1: thought it was really important to test it and to give ourselves the confidence that we could do this full time, make sure that, you know, this was actually a problem consumers did have. Um, So it was you know, an amazing experience. I think it gave us in some ways some false confidence because it went so well. Um, It started with cold emailing beauty brands because neither of us were from the beauty industry, so we didn't have any contacts. So we looked up, you know, the brands that we knew about, that we loved. Um, We tried to find CEOs or presidents, and we basically just asked them, you know, will you give us advice on our idea? And if we were able to get a call, then we would ask for a meeting. And from the meeting, we would try to secure samples for the beta test and the ability to sell their product online. And so, you know, that went surprisingly well, um, we, we'd reached out to a couple dozen brands and we heard back from over half of them and we were able to get meetings and we were able to secure, you know, samples for two monthly boxes, which is what we had wanted our beta test to be. It gave us enough time to run the test and then graduate from business school. Um, so that was great. And then we also needed customers. So, we said, we need clean data. We don't want our friends and family basically um, skewing the information towards success.
0: So we mm-hmm. told them they
1: couldn't join. We said, sorry, you can't join Bird Box. Um, but what each of us did was we reached out to about 20 people each that we thought had networks, whether they were in school, you know, graduate schools or undergrad or law firms, consultants. And we said, you know, can you please not join because you know us, but can you forward this email with a PayPal link? and we'll see if anybody bites. And those forty emails became four thousand forwards and we were able to fill our two hundred person beta test, you know, pretty quickly. Um and yeah, then it was off to the races. And I think we were really surprised how excited people were right away with this very minimum viable version of the vision.
0: Yeah, so I was reading somewhere that you are trying to delight the the consumer so that when you open a box in the mail, it's not just a package you're getting, it's a delightful experience, which I thought was really cool because so often people discount that um feeling of unboxing.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. I mean we have focused from the very beginning and I think are even re energized around this concept of being at the intersection of delight and efficacy. Or, you know, like just the fact that it, it does need to work, things need to serve a purpose in your life, but there's also the, the aspects of it that aren't necessarily purposeful and that are just for the sheer enjoyment. And we want the entire birch box experience to sit at the intersection of that delight and efficacy. But we always knew it was you know, so, so important that when the box came, you just smiled and you just felt like this is a moment for myself.
0: And in, in those early beta testing boxes, did you have any um, brands that people would be aware of, like household name brands?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, we had to because nobody had ever heard of Birchbox, so we couldn't really get customers if we didn't have these brands. Yes, we had Kiehl's and Benefit um, and NARS, like right in the first boxes.
0: And that's amazing also for kind of a glow effect if you're a brand new company to align yourself with, you know, great brands that everybody loves.
1: Oh, yes. That was really, really important. And we recognized that. And it was also one of the biggest challenges I'd say was, you know, getting these big brands, because even though we were able to get them in the beta test, once we were ready to roll out Birchbox more widely, it was pretty comical because initially they were like, great. This was great. You know, good job, students. Um, but they were like, you have to call us when you're bigger. That was kind of the overall. Now we have to go back to work and bid tests, let us know if it works and then we'll let you know. And we were, you know, so initially we were too small and then we grew so fast. I mean we were Yeah, just
0: doubling and doubling like,
1: Yeah.
0: You had a wait list of two thousand people just by word of mouth right after the beta test and then you doubled right. so much that you had a million subscribers in under five years.
1: Yeah, it was so fast. And so basically by five months in, we were huge and we went back and we said, okay, like now we're big. And they said, well, you're too big. You know, the brands are like, well, now we don't have these samples just on hand. We need to plan for it. We need a year. We need, you know, so getting those big brands and kind of working into the way that they did business, but also changing the way they did business is probably one of the most challenging, wonderful parts of the journey.
0: Well, that's really awesome. So now, how did, how did you um, get people who were skeptical about subscription beauty to consider Birchbox? Or what, what, what did you find was your pathway to customer acquisition?
1: Customer acquisition? Honestly, um, customers were so ready for this. It was fascinating. When we raised money, it. we were business school students, and so we did a typical financial model where we assumed a certain cost of customer acquisition, and that would allow us to grow a certain amount. Um, And we kind of told ourselves, of course, it's going to take time because, number one, consumers had never paid for samples, and their expectation was that a sample was free. Um, And number two, we were saying, you know, we are going to, we're asking you to buy beauty products on the internet, you know, which obviously you're not doing. So we expected that it would take time, there would be a learning curve before people would want to really become customers of Birchbox and we were just wrong. I mean, from the moment the boxes started dropping people's little mailboxes, apartments and offices, the customer took the words out of our mouth. I mean, they understood right away what the purpose was. They immediately told us how annoying it was to go into a store and ask for samples or how they were just getting random samples. They weren't personalized. They you know, it meant nothing to them. They had straight hair. They were getting curly hair. They were getting dark shades when they have light skin, or vice versa. Um, and they immediately saw the value of Birchbox. It really was not a hard sell, um, which was surprising. And they, you know, gave us their credit card, allowed us to put them on a subscription rebilling, and they still described Birchbox as free. It was like amazing. Like it was just, you know, this was something that was. So, like, such a small amount of money for what it was bringing to them. And that was really surprising to us. So, you know, we hit our five-year customer target in seven months because customers were just swarming. And we had wait lists that were so long. I mean, it was – it sounds awesome, but it was so, so stressful and so hard. The numbers of customers that were just waiting to get a box and we were trying to get the beauty industry – to move faster, to say, like, this is a very valid way to acquire your customer, you know, beauty brand. And it it was really, really difficult and lots of crying. <laughs> I yeah, will say that so lots pass, of
0: crying. So, yeah, so I wanted to kind of delve into that because Birchbox is an incredible company, but, um, you know, no path to a big company comes easy. And um, people, especially those who are interested in, Business and beauty and growth of the company are always interested in some of the more challenging times, so you know, could you tell us a little bit about some of the difficult moments um, between then and now?
1: Oh my gosh, yes, I mean, so many difficult moments, and like I said, in the early days, the challenge, which sounds like a blessing, but honestly, it was so stressful and non stop work was. Just trying to meet supply and demand. So demand being so much bigger than supply, um, and trying so hard to change the way the beauty industry was thinking about sampling, was thinking about customer acquisition. Um, you know, really talking to brands in terms that they hadn't been thinking in the past, which was like, what's your cost of customer acquisition? What's your return on investment for, you know, money you're investing in acquisition, and how how valuable is that customer coming to you? Because we had all of this data we could share with them about a sample and how it yielded a transaction and a customer, but they didn't have baseline information to compare it to. So um, it took a while kind of building that up. It took time to really get their trust and awareness around the incremental customer we could bring them, that it was not gonna be taking away from their other channels, that it was gonna grow their business overall, that it was gonna grow their other channels too. There was a halo effect. Um, So initially that was so, so Mm -hmm. stressful. I used to joke with my team all the time that I was just gonna get a part-time job working at like a giant department store so that I could like steal samples. (laughs) <laughs>
0: I was How many so samples stressed were you out. asking people for at this time? Were you asking for like at a million samples?
1: Point, at that point, it was like tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands because we customized the boxes, so we didn't need a million of something. But we needed right. hundreds of brands to give, them, to give us tens of thousands of something. Um, mm. So that was what worked really well about having personalized boxes right away is that we could work with smaller quantities. But it was still a lot because brands, you know, were taking those samples away from their existing channels. And they had planned out those sample events for years for the big brands that were sampling at scale. And small brands never sampled at scale. So we were kind of in parallel trying to get big brands to give us, you know, skim off a little bit of everyone else's order. And then also in parallel, we were making all of these relationships with sample manufacturers and getting small brands who had been sampling kind of inefficiently or expensively new contracts to make more samples at a better price. And we're pre-negotiating. We're kind of trying to get brand, um, these sample manufacturers like big lots of components and say, you know, we're going to get five different mascaras coming in. We're going to get, it was this dual track of just trying to get sample supply up. That was so, so hard. It, you know, required us to just constantly challenge ourselves to be creative about
0: solving the problem. Yeah, that's really interesting because it sounds like a, you know, like a humble brag problem, like, oh, too many people wanted us. But if you think about actually fulfilling customer demand, that can be, you know, extremely stressful because there are all these people who want you and you don't want to give them a bad taste in their mouth because they're totally. waiting too and it opens, long and not getting It opens the want. door yeah. for
1: competition, right? I mean, that's exactly what happened to us. It just opens the door for competition. If you have, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people you can't meet demand, and somebody else can say, Oh, well, you know, we can give you this like exactly the same thing. You know, obviously it wasn't. Um, then there you go. Then you start having, you know, a competitor.
0: Who who do you consider your competitors in this space?
1: So when we um started Birchbox and kind of still to this day, we really focus on the places that people are buying beauty today because that's what we want to be. We want to be the place you buy beauty, not just the place you discover beauty. And that has been our intention from the very beginning. So we've always focused on where are you buying beauty today and which one of those players are growing. So the ones in the U.S. are Sephora and Ulta, which are the ones that, you know, are experiencing growth. We still, we also look at, you know, like the Target um, and places like that. Department stores have since we started Birchbox, they were a competitor, but now they're less and less so um, a competitor, which is interesting change.
0: Yeah, so it's really kind of an industry disruption type of business model, because if you're totally changing the experience the average consumer has buying beauty, then a lot of the traditional ways that you know people will get a new lipstick or a new hair product might totally change. Yeah, that's what
1: we intended to be. You know, that's always what we envisioned is that we would completely change your whole path to purchase, um, including the actual
0: transaction. So I was reading that recently you guys are, um, you got Birchbox into the black and um, you have had an infusion of additional capital to help the company grow. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of, Current challenges, but also current progress and exciting new developments that you guys have going. Yeah, the 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 first challenge you talked about was obviously just the very beginning. There's
1: there's so many challenges, and we focused, um, you know, for the last couple of years on profitability and on really, you know, making sure that Birchbox could just basically change the way that we operated um, quickly because you know we're a venture-backed business and. If you don't know what that means, that means that basically you take in capital um, and they take equity or ownership in the company and you use that capital to grow and to grow You know, before you have a profitable business. So basically you're not funding your own growth. You're using outside capital to grow. And we just realized that we couldn't do that. Um, we didn't want to do that forever. We didn't want to do that for longer because it really left us in a vulnerable position as a company. But in order to change that, we had to completely change the way that we operated um, and go through some painful cost-cutting, um, and it really challenged us, like emotionally and int- intellectually, um, and in every level, just to completely transform the way that we operated as a company. Um, during going through that, where we had to lay off people and, you know, just cut back on so many initiatives that we were excited about and focus and prioritize more, it was one of the most horrible experiences that I could have ever imagined, kind of the opposite of what you would ever want to envision of starting a company and kind of starting a successful company too. Um, Never would it have crossed my mind. And then after the fact, having experienced that, I see it as critical. Like critical would be an understatement. I, I don't think we could ever create Vision that we've always said we've had, which is build a forever company, having not gone through the experience of changing the way that we operated the business so quickly and realizing that we were capable of that, that we were absolutely capable of, you know, reinventing internally the way Birchbox worked and, you know, obviously externally and that we could do that again and again, because that is the game. That is the only way to stay alive as a company. That is the only way to stay relevant as a company is change all the time and obviously being able to survive things internally and kind of, you know, take control of things yourself is such a critical part of being able to stay in the game. So, like I said, it was really challenging, um, but we were able to to get through that. Um, And we did, we have raised additional money from one of our investors, um, And it, you know, it's really exciting. I think what we talk about all the time now at Birchbox is, you know, we're in a different place. We've learned a lot from the experience of operating the business the way that we were operating it when we focused solely, almost solely on profitability. And we want to make sure that we take those lessons with us. Um, But now also, you know, we were able to learn so much and kind of compare the initiatives that we were doing in our approach um, to operating the business when we were focused on profitability to prior and and how do we want to evolve and change that going forward without losing sight of the great things. So I think the most important thing that we took away from the experience is how powerful it is to have very few priorities and initiatives as a company because well-financed, you can basically spread the entire company extremely thinly right? Everybody can have their own project. Everybody can have their own initiative. And honestly, it isn't that those ideas are bad by any means. I mean, all of the things that we were doing are still things that are on the company's roadmap, but it's that it's very hard to have momentum that you need, the kind of energy that you need at the company when the team isn't really focused on the exact same thing. Because Momentum comes from like an exponential result, an exponential change, an exponential accomplishment. When everybody's energy is spread so thin, you kind of just get these like incremental things that are happening and they're progress, but you don't feel it as holistically as a company. And I know that regardless of our capitalization, even our ability to self-fund, it is so powerful to have few priorities and accomplish them together as a team.
0: That's great. That's amazing. And do you feel like the company ethos has recovered from like layoffs and um, that sort of blip in time when you were refocusing your energies?
1: Honestly, I think that was one of, you know, another like staggering realizations is how strong and resilient people were. It wasn't even as though that was something that needed to be recovered from for, for much for, you know, that long. It was, as though the team really rallied behind the initiative of profitability. And we're very focused on it and, and we're definitely able to find like energy and motivation towards that being the common goal. So I didn't find that that was the biggest challenge. I think, I think eventually as we, you know, were pursuing that, but we also were seeing opportunities that we now just understood better. Having kind of lived through every cycle of building a business, you know, from building to scaling to hypergrowth to, you know, a refocus on profitability, we had such a better understanding of what we want to do. And so the biggest challenge was making sure that we were able to secure the right partner and some financing to get back to that and then, you know, come to the company and say, okay, now we can do these things that we know we want to do and we need to refocus again and and go into this mode without losing sight of where we've come from and what we've learned. It's time yet again to change. And, you know, that's been met with excitement and energy, too. But all of this is really about, you know, how are you bringing the team along with you and how are you able to communicate, you know, openly, um, but also in a way that like helps people understand, you know, what is. What is the new and exciting thing about the opportunity?
0: Yeah, that's really amazing. I was reading your interview in Inc. magazine, and um, you were talking about how you guys, one of the ways that you refocused was reevaluating how you were spending on marketing and that um, you stopped spending on television for a while and started to rethink what social media meant to you and rethink the concept of PR, and could you speak sort of a little bit about marketing and what that means for a new business?
1: Sure. It's obviously um, a really important part of building a business, and I think the most important thing to know about customer acquisition and marketing is just the, the game is changing every day. It's it's the most dynamic part of the business almost is, you know, how you're going to find the right customer um, at what volume and at what price. And so you can never really be complacent with your activity there. You have to constantly be looking for like, what are the next places? What are the new places to find the customer? And there's two kind of big challenges for us when it comes to customer acquisition. Um, One is who our target customer is because we're very focused. Obviously we're a beauty company. We're in the beauty industry, but we're focused on a different customer than the beauty industry has traditionally focused on since You know, the beauty industry is focused on a woman who really loves beauty and is very passionate about beauty. And we always felt like she was very well served. She's a very important customer to the industry, but she has a lot of options. She knows her way around. She can navigate it just fine. Um, And so we decided to focus on a consumer that we refer to as the casual beauty consumer. So not passionate about beauty, but definitely still a consumer of beauty. And what's challenging about that focus is that she's not necessarily looking for us, she's not looking for a solution to discover beauty. She's fine. So that's one big challenge. And then the second challenge is our ambition for the relationship we have with our customer. We, we really believe that Birchbox can be a part of your life and a part of your life kind of forever, you know, helping you on this journey, obviously changing the way our relationship works over time, but. We want to be kind of in it with you, like deep with you and in a relationship with you. Um, so we're looking for a customer who's not looking for us, and we also want it to be like deep and not just transactional. So I love that. that
0: just, That's so <laughs> impassioned. Like you kind of want to grow yeah. with someone over their life. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, know. you know, because we really feel this customer has never been a priority. You know, that she's, of course, anybody any will brand, take her money. I don't know
0: if I've I don't know if any other brand has wanted to be in a relationship with me before. It's just kind of amazing. Oh,
1: our vision um, is to be forever useful and always delightful. I mean, we want to be a part of your life forever. And that means that we know we have a responsibility like, you know, we don't just, we don't just get to take your credit card and then hope you forget about us. You know, we want it to be an active decision that we are bringing you joy and value. Um, and that you get it, that you're feeling, you know, that Birchbox gets you and that we are doing something that, you know, you, you either couldn't do yourself because you don't have time or you just don't want to do yourself. That we're able to facil- facilitate that and make you feel like such an empowered and smart consumer in beauty.
0: What are your um, plans for Birchbox? Uh, going forward. Are you going to focus on more brick and mortar stores? Are you going to continue to own this company and um what what are your goals for growth?
1: Yeah. So we are very focused on making it just um kind of irrefutably clear that we are here for the casual beauty consumer. Um and you know she represents seventy percent of the market. So it's a really big chunk of consumers. So we've focused on evolving the product, evolving um, everything about, you know, the way we work, which has started, but will continue to unfold in 2018 and 2019 to make it very clear who our customer is. I mean, it'll keep happening forever, but we have some exciting evolutions planned. And then, yes, I think, you know, if your objective is to, you know, serve this underserved customer, um, you know, this woman who we think, has not been a priority of the industry, we have to think more than just single channel, than just digital, because beauty is still purchased vast majority offline. Um, So we are looking at expanding our presence offline um, in order to get to know our customer and also in order to get to that depth that we talked about in marketing. You know, We feel like it's such a powerful thing to connect with our customers in real life and for them to see that The way that we feel, the passion that we have about giving them a better experience, that they deserve a better experience is real. And if they could just feel that we actually care that they have a better experience and that they have always deserved it, that it could really change our dynamic with them forever Um, because they could see that this is not, you know, just some marketing, that we really want them to feel, you know, that they are the drivers. You know, this is a discretionary purchase and they should enjoy it. And that is something that really motivates the entire team. So we think offline could really help both, you know, be, help Birchbox basically be where our customer is, which is very natural, but also really strengthen and build a relationship um, that can grow and be long, long term um, where we can be dynamic and continue to evolve because we're really interacting with our customer all the time and we're really understanding how her needs are evolving in the context of how the world is changing.
0: Amazing. So I have a couple of quicker questions to ask you that are more for our listeners. We have a lot of um, young and and energetic and ambitious people who listen to this podcast, and I was wondering if you could give them some advice, um, especially for people who are interested in starting a company. What's something that you wish you knew back then?
1: Okay, so it's hard to hear this, but... I don't wish that I knew much because I don't think that I think that being naive is probably the biggest gift of starting a company. I actually think it's a tool to leverage that you don't know the rules, that you don't know the game. I think it allows you to ask questions, to challenge things, to challenge entire industries, and you don't do it from a place of, I know better. You're literally just trying to use deductive reasoning and question something fundamental. So, For example, I think the fact that my co-founder and I had no experience in beauty for the most part, and we were saying, you know, look, the way you're acquiring a customer doesn't seem to make sense to us, you know, let us show you this different path. I think it was helpful that we didn't know what we were talking about as far as how the beauty industry worked, because it allowed us to, you know, really learn from everything, but also challenge things kind of in a very organic and real way. Um, And so I think that being naive is such a tool, and I would embrace it, Um, embrace the fact that, you know, you can challenge things, that you can just question things, and that you can kind of look at it as a white piece of paper instead of a book that has all of these rules, and then you can try to tackle, like, a few of breaking the rules. Uh, I think that's really valuable. I love
0: that. Because often people are so intimidated by the blank piece of paper, but maybe the blank blank white piece of paper is just where you need to be to do something revolutionary. Um, earlier, you and I were talking about how being on bed rest is one of the most challenging things that you've ever gone through. And um, for those of you who don't know, Katia right now is on bed rest expecting her fourth baby. Um, so tell us why that's been so challenging for you.
1: Oh, yeah, it's definitely the most psychologically challenging thing I've ever gone through. Um, I mean, I think that it's because I've just never really been a very dependent person. I really like to do things for others. I like to do things for myself, I like to take care of everything and even though thanks to technology I'm able to work um and thanks to having an amazing family I'm able to see my family, I'm really reliant on everybody for everything you can imagine and it is so foreign to me and this is coming after you know running a business for eight years, which really required becoming a much more vulnerable person and seeing all of my flaws or trying to see more and more of my flaws as quickly as possible because that's such an important part of leadership. So I felt I was such a, you know, I was evolved in the sense of comfort with vulnerability, but to be dependent and vulnerable in this way is, you know, unparalleled to me where I like really need you know, just all in order for me to stay happy and sane and fed and all of the basics. I'm just relying on my wonderful husband and my all of our parents, um, my friends and I've never I've never had to do that in any experience in my life and I know that it's teaching me something really important, but it is so hard.
0: Yeah, I guess that's kind of embracing the challenge. But right? um it sounds like you're Um, putting in full days of work. It's, you know, being a boss CEO still from your hospital room.
1: (laughs) Is that right? Yeah, thank you. And thankfully, you know, I'm still in New York City and the team can come up here for meetings and I can video in and largely like work has been really doable in this setting, thankfully, and it's helping me kind of pass the time and it's also the first time ever where I've had so much time to really slow down my thinking and even just be more methodical and think more long-term every single day, um, which is the exact right time for Birchbox where I have more bandwidth to be focused on long, long long-term. So I see, I see the blessing in that and I'm grateful for that.
0: Well, that's amazing. I remember um, about a decade ago, I went to, I went up to HBS for a weekend to visit my friend Heather Fletcher, who's your friend also Um, And I remember um, she introduced me, and at that time, um, I think she mentioned that you were just thinking about a company that you might start or you might not start. And it's amazing to speak to you more than 10 years later and see that you've made this into this huge, mega, you know, at at some point, value that, Half a billion dollar company, um, so I think that <laughs> that's, that's really that is incredible. very surreal, and um, <laughs> such a such a such a, a lot of growth in such a small amount of time. So that's amazing. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I
1: I still feel that it is a its it has been an extremely surreal experience, even for the challenges and all of the things that I could have never wanted about the experience. It's just been the most wonderful career and job, and I do feel a lot of gratitude for all of it.
0: Well, I could talk to you all day because this is so fun, but I know that um, we both have to get our day started. This was our our 8 a.m. virtual meeting, but um, I wanted to close with one last question for you, which is what has been or currently is the most surprising thing about the beauty industry to you? like in your learnings and your experiences at Birchbox, has there been one or two things, have there been one or two things that have stood out for you as, um, you know, really surprising? I think that it's still
1: surprising to me that there's so much resistance to change. You know, there's obviously been a lot of change and it hasn't just been Birchbox in the last eight years, but it still feels, and I guess it is normal, but it's, surprising to me as somebody who just wants to serve the customer and just wants to stay relevant to the customer that we have to have conversations about you know really 360 degrees of change and really completely considering something differently whether it's you know the potential customer for a product or the type of product or the way that we get in front of the customer the way that we talk to her how real we can be with her Um, the resistance to change in this like you know, holding on to the past, I think is still really difficult um, and frustrating, (laughs) obviously, because we still um, we really partner in this industry and we really are focused on being a partner that adds value to everybody, adds value to brands, adds value to customers. And it's one of the most challenging parts of the job is, you know, trying to trying to completely change the way that we, you know, give this customer a positive experience in beauty and, and being met with a lot of no still. But that would never slow us down. That will never stop us. We're going to keep
0: finding workarounds. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Katia. I am so excited to see what you guys have in store next for Birchbox and I'm sure other amazing projects. And it's been so fun chatting with you. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I hope you have a great day at work.
0: Sorry that we couldn't do this in person, but next time. I know. Next time.